hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am still here with my very good friend, Jason. Say hello, Jason. Joe is required. Bring him here. You do a much better Votan. I am an envy of your Votan voice. Thank you. I I also do other robots. In fact, as we go through this episode, I'm going to throw a few in. Um, We are here to talk about The War Machines Episode 3. Is is this the first story without titles? Um, I believe that would have been uh, the Savages was the mm. first one without individual titles. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So this would have been the second one. People are still that adjusting was, uh, to uh, not. This having... is Lloyd's big contribution to the world of Doctor Who: getting rid of individual episode titles. And Polly and Ben. And, and Polly and Ben taking the intelligence out of the series. Oh, sorry. Anyway. Um... <laughs> I am a big fan of the Ennis Lloyd era. I mean, I'm in the middle of season five right now in my own marathon. I've just reached the end of his line. But the episodes, for the most part, are really yeah. strong, with, of course, the occasional clunker like the Abominable Snowman. I think I think there's like a sameness to it, but there's a confidence to it as well. He was trying to remake the series, but of course he inherited a backlog of scripts, which is why he ends up doing the Gunfighters and things like the Highlanders. It took a long time for him to actually make his mark. But by the time you get to something like Evil of the Daleks or Two of the Cybermen, he's remade the show and given it a whole new aura. Speaking of somebody who has yammered on solo about Two of the Cybermen recently, um, I love that story. I I think every time I watch that story, I love it more. So that kind of goes the other way for me. Sometimes you watch a story and you, well, like you and the Abominable Snow can't even say it the abominable snowmen actually that's a good question i want to ask you what's the story that you've reevaluated the other way oh this this also the episode that i watched right after the abominable snowmen the ice warriors the ice warriors it's an incredibly low budget story it's so cheap they can't even afford to build the ionizer yeah and It has been a challenge for me to get through in the past, but after suffering through three nights of the Abominable Snowman, by the time I got to episode one of the Ice Warriors, where you have Troughton and Hines and Deborah Watling at their comic peak, doing that thing where they poke their head around the corner, one, two, three, uh, bottom, middle, top, Uh and then Troughton is running around the ionizer control with his fur coat flapping, Chasing after Leader Clint. I was so relieved and smitten with that one episode after suffering through the Abominable Snowman that I became a huge Ice Warrior fan. And of course, I'm posting my tweets late at night where all my inhibitions are gone. And I have just, I was having a complete mushy sapfest over the Ice <laughs> Warriors all over Twitter. I love that sequence at the beginning <laughs> where they're climbing out of the TARDIS, that comedy business. You're on my hands. for that story. <laughs> That's great comedy. And uh, Abominable Snowman is so largely dull that you need that sort of relief. And the three of them had magnetic chemistry, those three. They really did. Okay, I'm queued up for episode three, if you are. I'm ready to go. Let's do it in five, four, three, two, one. 
off we go. I will say I'm very excited to watch Fury from the Deep tonight. I think of all the Doctor Who serials, that is the one that I've seen the least. I think I only watched the recons once, and that would have been at least 15 years ago. Have you seen the animation the anim yet? Animation is brand new, not even available in the States. I think I got mine direct from uh, Region 2. Okay. And it's still in its original shrink wrap. I got it a couple of weeks ago, and I'll be watching it tonight. So you, you've resisted watching it to wait for when you get to that point? I was waiting to get to that point. You're a better man than me. That's debatable. <laughs> oh, here we go. So that's a war machine action again. Using its balsa wood claw to uh, hammer boxes. There's a sequence later where it shoots out the the steam and it like caps something catches fire. I think that's the one point where they actually come across as being quite menacing. Yeah, they couldn't do much with live fire effects in the studio, I think. Because at the moment it just looks like a, a a box having a bit of a meltdown, doesn't it? It's kind of back forward. That takes around. a really long time to do a three-point turn. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's someone in there, Jason. There's two people in there. They're trying to drive. <laughs> and now we're back to the novelty opening credits. The war match. Well, shoot. It is. <laughs> it is, yeah. It is Lloyd was determined to get his name in there. Episode three. So this is two. I like that 1960s computer font. Um, Ian Stewart, Black Stories back-to-back, -back, isn't it? Savages and the War Machines. Yeah, if you go back and read uh, Shannon Patrick Sullivan's website, Brief History of Time Travel, if you read the behind-the-scenes service that was going on for seasons three and four, it is amazing they actually had a show to air every week. I mean, you had scripts falling through left, right, and center. You had a revolving door in the production office. Well, you're talking, about are you talking about season three? Because, uh, yeah, I mean, season three is great, but it is uh, all over the place, isn't it? Companions, tones, styles, quality. Three different showrunners and ten serials. If you go back to uh, Galaxy 4 all the way through to this one. And they just can't settle on a Doctor Who girl, can they? Not in that season. <laughs> Not until they get to Polly. Annika Wills is... Great. I actually got to meet her at a convention in Toronto in 1997. It was a one-day convention. It was her and another Doctor Who actor, actor. And I just gravitated to her. She was great. Really nice. Really friendly. At least in 1997. I haven't, of course, seen her in 24 <laughs> years now. But that, was, that was a positive experience. Well, I get the impression from listening to some of her interviews on uh, Big Finish stories that she does, that she kind of... Um, pushed away from Doctor Who for a bit when she left the series and then she did a convention like years later and realised there was still this massive love for the show and then sort of just joined in the fun after that I have a friend Nicole who actually cosplays as Polly, she has multiple Polly costumes oh, wow. that she wears at different conventions Is she a blonde? And she actually has, she has she's actually gotten a shout out on stage from Annika Wills for her costumes Amazing, is she a blonde? She is, and when I first met her, she was dressed as Polly from the end of the War Machines with the striped shirt and the peaked cap. Oh, that's a great look. That's a phenomenal look. Uh, and here's Ben being dragged into the room by two extras. 
Don't say any lines. We'll have to pay you more. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in the next Ian Stewart Black story, you've got Ian going at uh, Ian. Oh, sorry, fraudulently. Ben going bad. Um, and... Oh, that's right. The, the subliminal the, the subliminal messaging as he sleeps. Mm. And Polly saying, "What's wrong with you?" My introduction to the Macatera was the 1990s audio cassette with the Colin Baker narration. Where Colin Baker narrates, Jamie was tossing restlessly. <laughs> really? I can still remember the end of episode one where he says, the crab-like creature was hideous. But <laughs> <laughs> that narration was not great. I wonder what Sir Charles was drinking then. A small little vodka. That's sort of brownish. Brandy? Well, uh, maybe whiskey. Whiskey? I don't know. It's a bit early in the day for a civil servant to be having whiskey in his office. You are an enemy of mechanized evolution. <laughs> what a cornball line. Look at the composition there, though. That's really impressive. That's got like three, four layers. Oh, you're right. You've got uh, Ben, you've got Green, you've got the machine, you've got the ball guy on the back. Mm. You're right. That's a pretty cool shot, too. Some of these, like you say, some of these young directors, they had some real aspirations, didn't they, to do something to kind of push TV? I mean, the stuff that Waris Hussein was doing in Unearthly Child with the uh, live flashbacks <laughs> in studio yeah. and uh, the TARDIS materialization effect, he made the TARDIS scary. I mean, these are all people in their 20s just saying, look what I can do. Do you remember the Michael Imerson and the Ark very similarly? The the sequence in the Cave of the Skulls, the the bit on film, and it keeps cutting back to the Doctor and Companions' reactions as they're fighting. I mean, that's, yes. that is cinematic. It's it's that good. And that bald extra in the back is pretty impressive. <laughs> the eye kind of gravitates towards his bald head. I'm gonna milk this part for every every bit I can get. So who wins the hypnotized acting sweepstakes? Is look at Polly's eyes. It it's Polly. Look, look at Polly's eyes. Oh, here we are back in Wotan HQ. That is a really good panorama. You're right. Do you know what's interesting is this is exactly what Rusty Davis is doing in Army of Ghosts, isn't it? He takes um, Canary Wharf and turns that into Torchwood. Here we've got the post office tower, which is Wotan's lair. It's an exciting idea for kids, I think, to take something that they'll see every day, if you live in London, um, and turn it into something menacing. He does the same thing with the Empire State Building in uh, the Daleks in Manhattan. Yeah. And in a different way, Stephen Moffat does that with... Oh, no, that was Rusty Davis in, with the Tower of London. That's a unit base, isn't it? Uh, that was Moffat, if we're talking about Day of the Doctor. I thought it was in the Christmas Invasion. I thought they went into... Maybe not. See, as, as much as I love Doctor Who, the new series... There's a large portion of episodes that I've only seen once and only once and I've never watched again. Well, Jason, so that would a, be an interesting commentary then for the second there's time. There's a lot of gaps in my new series IQ. 
Okay, on an entirely superficial level, Ben's costumes are getting ever more distracting. That's sure, it doesn't leave much to the imagination, no. <laughs> And it's usually the ladies that you say that about. That is a plunging neckline, the sleeves are rolled up, you can see his chest. Poor Polly, though, she's looking a bit ragged. She's wearing a heavy wool skirt, too. And she's been for all frazzled. forced to do all this manual labour. Explosives. She wasn't using a lot of care with the box part <laughs> of explosives. That kind of got up in her face. Ben was being quite clever, though, though, wasn't he? He was trying to, he was getting her to reveal information about the plan. Oh, there's a gun. Okay, so they mean business. They've got rocket launchers, explosives, and guns. <clears throat> Is that just in case the war machines don't work? <laughs> it seems to me that only Polly's doing the heavy lifting here with all these men about. Look, there's a box mark. Danger. You're right. They have enough there to uh, start World War Three in that warehouse. That is a lot of ordnance. We better hope that this doesn't end with like a massive explosion, like most Pertwee stories, because that building is going to go up. That is a good low-down camera angle on Major Green, shot from below. Mm. Every shot is done with complete care. And when you compare it to other directors at the time, and I will point the finger at Richard Martin, whose direction is never particularly stellar, this just goes to show what can be done in the same time with the same money. Richard Martin did Dalek Invasion of Earth, though, which has some really good moments. That was his first one, I think. I'd say it has good location work. I find the, the studio work. There's an in-studio flashback in episode two of Dalek Invasion of Earth that I quite enjoy. But more to the point, it is episode three, and William Hartnell has been stuck in this room for the last episode and a half, grabbing his lapels. Luckily, he'll be getting out on the street soon. But they haven't left him much to do. No, he, he it's, it's the companions, isn't it, that have been doing everything in this. Well, they're not even companions. The guests... Right, this is their first story, and Dodo's already been unceremoniously... Showed it to the corner. Oh, Jason, I'm certain she'll be back. Don't worry. Before the end of the oh, story. Oh, yeah, yeah. She'll come back for a big, tearful finale in episode mm -hmm. four. Have no fear. Could you imagine a new series style ending for Dodo? <laughs> Swelling music, <laughs> tears. The doctor and Dodo on opposite sides of a wall. <laughs> come back! Come back! Open the gate! Take me back! No, Hartnell is, I burned up a star and made it go supernova to get rid of you. Goodbye. Yeah, to make it get rid of you. You are mean. Uh, now, is she, eyes and Annika Wills. Is she having a crisis of conscience here? Bugged out eye, I think. Woo. Oh, my word. Did you say that? <laughs> she suddenly went evil again. Yeah. She's got the mascara eye giving her the raccoon face. Do you know who Sir Charles looks like? Uh, bearing in mind that I'm across the pond from you and I may have a different frame of reference, what? I was going to say Principal Weatherby from Archie Comics. No! He, well, yes, 
but he looks like Sir Charles from the Seeds of Doom as well. They look very similar. Oh, Sir Colin, you're right. Oh, Sir Colin, right. sorry, yeah. That's another great story. Yeah. What is it? Is there a better cliffhanger in the entire 26-year classic run than episode three of the Seeds of Doom? Is, is that, that not the best cliffhanger? Is that the one where the monster comes towards the screen? Is it that one? No, it's Sarah's arm is clamped down next to the pod, and oh, the pod starts yeah. opening. Yeah, 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 and, and Liz Slayton plays that fear so well. <sighs> Liz Slayton did everything fierce. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna have to come back and do a Liz Slayton episode well, for this. There's show too. plenty to choose from. None have been taken so far. In fact, you know what? Only one Hinchcliffe story has been taken so far. That surprises me. When you invited me on the first time, I picked Attack of the Cyber because I didn't like it. I've been hesitating to pick stories that I love because nobody needs to hear me sighing heavily <laughs> over Elizabeth Slayton every five seconds. Oh, I think that would be compelling listening. But, you know, but interestingly... Now that, have, now that we have a routine going, now I can bring out the good stories. Three William stories have been chosen. So Andrews of Tara, Stones of Blood, and City of Death, and one Hinchcliffe. That's just, that baffles me. But your primary podcast, Nymon, began with breakdowns of two Graham Williams stories. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan. I think that may be why. Maybe people have, uh, I was to say, trying to please me. I don't think anyone's trying to please me, but. See, look at this, the Doctor and Ben. I, I don't know. It's just a lovely visual. I like the older man and the younger guy. I, I wish they'd done more together. And it's a different vibe than he had against William Russell and against Peter Purvis. It's ben, much more teacher-student than it was with the other two. Ben has like instant respect for him, doesn't he? Which Stephen right. didn't have. And... Because, you know, ben, ben is in the military, so he has the chain of command. Mm. The doctor's his commanding officer. I love how just unflappable this guy is. There's a lot of telephone acting in this episode, which Doctor Who wasn't doing a lot of. And then later on, you have shows like 24, which is all telephone acting. Mm. Well, Kane on the Company. Awesome. Go and watch Kane on the Company again. There's an awful lot of telephone acting in that. Hopefully Ian Levine doesn't charge us for use of the melody there. Did he do that? I believe that was I believe that was Ian Levine who composed the Canine and Company theme. Another crime against humanity. Uh, what was that song called? Doctor in Distress. Doctor in Distress. Let's okay, so this is the part of the episode that in 1985 and then again in 1987 would have put me to sleep. This is a long, wordless sequence of extras playing soldiers invading a warehouse. But and again, even though this was not even 20 years old when I saw it the first time, it just looked dated and boring. Doctor Who just wasn't doing this at the time, though. Lots of soldiers. This is like like the invasion from um, season six. And then Michael Ferguson would do the exact same thing with Ambassadors of Death, which is one of my mm. top ten classic series serials. So I guess I had to grow into the extras invading a warehouse his direction of that warehouse fight in episode one of ambassadors of death i mean that is the sweeney good it is i mean it's really incongruous for doctor who but it is like so real 
that sequence. Yeah, lots of live ammunition. And I love that that shot of um, the brigadier being held at gunpoint, and you think for a second he's actually gonna blow him away. But at this point in the show, like, there's never been anything like this before. No, because they had been consciously staying away. And when, even when they went back to the 60s, like in Planet of Giants, they weren't interacting with the regular characters. There was no contemporary feel. Do you think it's a shame that um, Ian and Barbara couldn't be in this, like, cameo at some point? We're, now we're back on contemporary Earth. Uh, not to turn this into factoid... Uh, Central, but I believe that they were supposed to have a cameo at the end of the massacre, and they couldn't. They couldn't pull it off. Ah. They were supposed to be walking by uh, Wimbledon as uh, the TARDIS takes off and oh. point the look of the camera. I would love. So they that. were supposed to be back contemporaneous to this, but it just, just didn't work out. And then it didn't work out again in what Mordred Undead when it was supposed to be Ian. Oh, when the Brigadier becomes a maths teacher. As he would. Oh, now this this um, action sequence in the warehouse, oh, I seem to remember it's rather good. I mean, Michael Ferguson was a pro, so he directs the heck out of it. But as a twelve-year-old, it wasn't what I was watching Doctor Who for. I wanted right. to see the Doctor saying cool, funny lines, uh-huh. and I wanted to see robots smashing things. I didn't want to see GI Joe invading a, a big warehouse. Do you want? I think the. There's a, there's, a, there's a live smoke effect in the studio. Here's a war machine smashing through a, crates. a, a, a pile of crates. Oh, yeah, they didn't say they all went over. There's close-ups. There's more ammunition. I mean, it's really technically well done, and I, I appreciate it now more at age uh, 47 than I did when I was 12 years old. But this is essentially like a massacre in a minute. Do you think, you know, when Hartner was saying there's evil but creeping into the show... Do you think it's this sort of stuff that he meant? Like all this kind of action that ended up with a load of bodies lying around? Episode four of the Daleks Master Plan, where oh, Katarina yeah. is killed and then Brett Vian is shot. And then the last line of the episode is Gene Marsh looking at the camera saying, Shoot them in the head. Yeah. I mean, that's a wonderful, wonderful story, but. That one episode will make you want to kill yourself when it's all done. Episode 12, where they age her to death. Ah, that is so weird. Loose Cannon managed to almost animate that whole thing. I would love to see that for real. Ugh. I'm not hopefully entirely... They an anima- hopefully they animate that, missing nine episodes. I think that, that's my biggest problem with the story, is I am never entirely on board with the threat that the War Machines pose. Did you read the Past Doctor Adventure by Simon Gurrier, The Time Travelers. I did. Fantastic book. I really enjoyed that. Which is the alternate turn-left universe where Votan wins and the Daleks are there and all the enemies have won out because it's still the future and the Doctor hasn't yet decided to save all these people. So Mm -hmm. they wind up in a world where Votan has won and has taken over. So maybe that's the real threat here then. That was a good stunt fall we just saw where the guy falls over backwards. And the idea of the weapons being jammed, that's pretty scary as well. Not being able to defend themselves. Right. Oh, we are coming up on one of the best cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. We sure are. And that's a really cloudy, grainy fight. That's a really good sequence. 
I mean, he's, he's cutting fast. I mean, whoever, I mean, he's, he's there in the gallery just yelling at the vision mixer every five seconds. One, three, dissolve the two, cut the film. I mean, this is a really, if, you, if you're live in the gallery directing this thing live to tape, think of how strenuous this has to be. Well, I mean, he doesn't hold on any shot for more than three seconds. Push forward to something like um, the Ambassadors of Death. Do you remember that bit where where the sound hits and there's all these cuts to the different people in the control room, like literally half a second cuts. He's he's just clearly very good at what he does. And now we have the Doctor finally, finally out of the house, joining the action, location taking over. Yeah. So now the story's going to pick up again. But I, I had no emotional investment in any of these soldiers. And here's a seven-minute sequence of nameless extras attacking a warehouse. Mm. So uh, you can see why the story didn't appeal to me back in the 80s. So did you have a problem with when they did it in, say, The Invasion? Or Spearhead from Space? Or, you know, stories like that? Or was, or was, was the Brigadier's involvement enough for you to, to care? Uh, the Brigadier, Liz Shaw, Pertwee... Ne- bother me when i first saw the invasion when it came out on vhs in the states in the mid 90s i was bored and i didn't like it <gasps> and it's not one of my favorite stories that being said i have not watched it through since 2007 when the dvds came out so when i get to it in a few weeks watching it in sequence in my pilgrimage at dr oh. who novels dr who novels it's brought to you by the good <laughs> Twitter. when i get that little that'll be a fortnight project so i think watching it in sequence right after the dominators i think i might enjoy it a little more this time do you know watching in two episode chunks as well i think will help with a long story like that i watch an episode i take a break and then i go back and watch the second episode half an hour later so it's all fresh in my mind that we just had that fire effect there i forgot it was on location but it was really effective in the foreground So they're really going for the idea that the war machines are unstoppable here, aren't they? They are an unstoppable force. Even there the... was a very James Bond riff where the uh, crate of fruit spills over and all the apples go tumbling across the floor. Mm. That was a that was a staple of the Roger Moore James Bond, where there's a boat chase and fruit being spilled in every episode or every movie. I've got a confession to my I've only ever seen James Bond, uh, two James Bond movies, so. Uh... What? Yeah. Well, first of all, every James Bond film in the 60s, 70s, and 80s has a large portion of Doctor Who actors walking through. I know. I know. I know. It's just not my genre, but a friend of mine here, is... Here. Let's pause that, because this is the cliffhanger right here. This is the scene. Oh, look at him. He's marvellous. You could argue this is where the, William Hartnell takes over the show, and the Doctor becomes the main character of the show. He's stalking the camera. There's the spotlight in his face. He's got the lapel thing going on. He's staring this creature down. He's become the hero. Oh, he's magnetic. He is amazing. That's And as great as Patrick Troughton was, Patrick Troughton wasn't doing that kind of staring down the enemy, drawing him up to his full high cliffhanger. William Hartnell could pull that off. Did Patrick Troughton ever do anything like that? No, because when he does, he I, I can remember like in the seeds of of death when he's going around with those two lights and he's but he's still like disheveled and looking a bit ramshackle and trampish isn't he like well the crotons when he and zoe are clowning around oh, episode yeah. four trying to stall the crotons that was more traveling stalling and, and comic bluffing L- less of a figure of authority but no less wonderful oh for sure <laughs> 